while in living in Washington State, I attended a church that had several men who were preppers. You guys know what the term prepper means? Somebody who is ultra prepared for the apocalypse or some impending doom. Most kids have toys under their beds. These guys' kids have footlockers with food, ammo, everything for them to ride out the apocalypse. And uh, one of these guys was a good friend of mine. We used to spend a lot of time after church on Sundays. And I remember he, he had a house on the river, and it was in the valley, the same valley uh, where that, that river was fed from a springs and lake up on St. Helens. And I was sitting there, we're looking out at the river, and he's telling me all about his preparations and all about what he would do in this kind of disaster or if this should happen. And, of course, Obama was president at that time, so we were most likely going to be overrun by Muslims or something. And uh, he, he was walking through all of the steps that he would take and how prepared he was. Even in the event of St. Helens blowing again, he, he had stores of food and ammo and, and things at a different place because he knew his house would be flooded. And I remember thinking just kind of two thoughts at the same time, like, wow, this guy is really weird. And at the same time, kind of awestruck at his preparation, at how much he put into being prepared for whatever emergency should befall him. I remember thinking, I don't think we could weather out a natural disaster. I don't know if we have the food for that kind of things. And, you know, preppers might go too far. They might be driven by unhealthy fear, and it would seem an unhealthy trust in conspiracy theories. But the thing is, these preppers have charted a course. They have plotted a way that they are making in the world. And they leads them to make decisions now for future events. They are prepared. They live in light of future events, which governs the way they walk today. That's the way they spend their money. The way the decisions they make are all based upon some future event that could happen. As Christians, we are called to live our lives in light of eternity. In light of the fact that Christ has promise that he will come again he will return and it's imminent we don't know when but we are called to be ready the fact and that fact alone should determine how we live how we walk every day the decisions that we make but sadly some of us we don't think that will ever happen We're so focused on right now that we fail to plan for the future. In that case, when Jesus comes, we're not prepared to meet him. In the parable of the ten virgins, as we continue our series through the parables in the Gospel of Matthew, we come now to Matthew chapter 25. In this parable, Jesus is explaining the end of times to his disciples. And of course, he he doesn't just answer the question. He tells them a parable. He puts them in a situation so that they can imagine how the end will be. And in this parable of the ten virgins, Jesus warns of having a lack of preparedness. It illustrates the truth that there are only two ways to live. The way of the fool... And the way of the wise, just as we 
read from Proverbs. The question is, in light of Christ's imminent return, how should we live? Let's look to see how Jesus answers that question from Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are not prepared. We would be prepared. Prepare our hearts now to receive your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may behold wonders out of your word. Bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts. May they be acceptable in your sight, O Lord a rock and our closest kinsman redeemer. Amen. I was reviewing my notes over these parables in the Gospel of Matthew, and I realized that I made a mistake. I never explained to you why Matthew uses the language kingdom of heaven, whereas the other Gospel writers say kingdom of God. You might be wondering, is, is Matthew speaking about the same thing? Well, he is. In fact, he is being respectful. Remember, Matthew's audience is largely Jewish Christians. And the Jews, out of respect for the name of the Lord and wanting to k- keep the commands of God, do not use the name of God. They do not say Yahweh. They do not use his proper name. They call him Adonai, Lord. And this is carried over into our English translations as well. When you find in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, it means Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God, His personal name. And so Matthew, out of respect, uses a circumlocution. He says, heaven as a stand-in for saying God. It is the same thing. When Matthew says kingdom of heaven, he means what the other gospel writers mean, kingdom of God. And so we have it here. Jesus begins after giving this discourse on the end of times. Remember, his disciples, they're marveling at the Temple Mount, at its beautiful stones. The temple that Herod built took 47 years to build. It was magnificent, glowing, gleaming gold, set apart. And it was a marvel of the world at that time. And the, and the disciples are overawed by it. But Jesus said, do you see those stones? Not one of them will be left 
they will all be thrown down. And he begins to tell them about the end of the world and the destruction of Jerusalem. And they wonder, when will these things be? But Jesus doesn't answer that. But he does tell them parables, several. We're going to look at two of them over the next two weeks. And the first of these is this parable of the ten virgins. So he begins, then... Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And that then is referring to the end of times. What is the kingdom of heaven going to be like? It's going to be like ten virgins. Five were foolish and five were wise. And of course this parable, sometimes we've had to do our own footwork, right? We've had to interpret and see who is the one that is right. And sometimes he would ask the audience, who did the will of the Father? And we would have to make an assessment of the story that he's telling. But here, it comes with its own interpretation. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. So we have to ask the question, well, why? Why does Jesus label them as fools, and why wise? Because Jesus begins with the fools, we also will look at the way of the fools. Look at verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps... They took no oil with them. Now, what kind of lamps are we talking about? They're not, I call them genie lamps. They're not genie lamps. You know, the kind that you see in like Aladdin. You rub it and then a genie comes out. They're they're not that kind. Those are used in the house. They're oil lamps. They have a, a, a container with a handle and then the wick comes out the front. You would use them to move from room to room. Largely in the first century context, when the sun goes down, work ceases, right? You don't do anything. You, you have a little bit of light if you need to move from one area to another, but you're not going to take one of these lamps outside. No, the, light, the lamps that are referred to here are torches, a long stick with rags wrapped around the top that have been soaked in oil. You would light them and they would have a, quite a blaze Now, you can imagine it wouldn't take that long for them to run out of oil for fuel to keep them burning. Now, we're not exactly sure how the weddings worked in the first century context. We don't have a lot of writings about exactly what took place or the vows or all all the things that we think of as a wedding were a little bit different in that time. But usually the bridegroom would be with the family of the bride with the bride somewhere separate, maybe a separate house, a banquet house, or maybe even at the bridegroom's house. The bridegroom would be with the family of the daughter, negotiating her dowry. During that time, there might be major festivities, a party going on. So you can imagine these virgins are there to attend to the bride. Matthew doesn't mention the bride, but it's sort of there assumed everywhere that there is a bride. And they're there to help her. Now, they've been given one task. They have to provide oil, or they have to provide light for a procession. So that when the bridegroom comes, he could gather these virgins, and they would go to the house wherever the bride is. And this would take place usually at night. And then there would be a a, a great uh, light and gathering processing with the bridegroom as he makes his way to the bride. Now, all the situation is not important for the story. The important part is that these foolish virgins, they didn't bring extra oil. 
And so when the bridegroom comes, when they hear the call, here is the bridegroom, no, no doubt somebody has announced that he's on his way. He's coming. And so they light their lamps, they trim them, and they get them ready. And then all of a sudden, as time is going on and he's coming, he's coming, and they realize we're running out of oil. We're not going to make it. We're not going to have enough light for the procession. And they beg the wise virgins, give us some of your oil. You brought extras. Give it to us. And then we'll have enough too. The wiser are wise. And so they know that this would get them all into a lose-lose situation because it might provide light at the beginning of the procession, but you want light at the end. When he reaches the bride, you don't want to run out beforehand. So they send them and they tell them to go and buy some. Apparently, you could buy oil in the nighttime. Now, a lot of commentators and preachers have looked for the meaning in the oil. What is the oil? Is it good works? Is it the Spirit? What is it? What's the oil? I think we need to be very cautious about that. We have seen that over and over in the parables. Many of them have one point that they're trying to convey. And that if we said this was good works, then it sort of looks like you could go and buy good works. How would that work? You could go and buy the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to get, in, we don't want to get into the weeds with this parable. What Jesus is emphasizing is that the foolish virgins did not prepare for the bridegroom to come. They were not ready for his coming. They did not bring extra oil. Probably they just had a torch with pre-soaked rag on it, and they thought that would be enough. Maybe they didn't even think he would take all day. Maybe they thought, why do we even need this torch? And so they were not prepared. And because they were not prepared, they weren't there when the bridegroom came. And then when they finally do come, they beat on the door. And they say, Lord, Lord, let us in. And he, he looks at them and he says, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. I'm not letting you into my wedding feast because I don't know you. You are not acquainted with me. So the way is blocked. They were so preoccupied with the day-to-day, with, with what's going on in their life. And, and I'm sure they're legitimate things to be distracted by, right? The bride. That's why they're there. The party. Their friends gossip, maybe thinking about their own marriage. And of course, sleep. But they really only had one job. One task to be prepared, to be ready when the bridegroom comes. The sobering thing here is that Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples, just his disciples. He's speaking to the church. They, all of the ten virgins received invitations to the wedding. But not all of them make it to the wedding. He's not speaking about their receiving the call of the gospel. He's speaking about them not considering the cost of discipleship. That they have to be prepared and ready when the bridegroom comes. He's speaking to the church because in the church there are foolish and there are wise. There are those who are ready to meet the bridegroom and there are those who have given no thought to it. 
They choose the cheapest, the easiest, the path of least resistance. It's heavy to carry oil. Extra oil? We may not even need it. And then what was always true becomes clear. They never really knew Jesus. A genuine encounter with the bridegroom leads to a healthy fear and reverence of the bridegroom and a proper preparation through Christian discipleship readying you for His appearing, for His coming again. You see, some some of us are foolish because we think we have more time than we do. And you can get in your car and you can get hit by a car on the freeway and you're done. Are you ready? Are you ready for that? For your time that you thought you had so much more of to be cut short. And others are foolish because they were unprepared for life to go on for so long. And more and more water that goes under the bridge. More problems that collect around us that we don't reconcile, that we don't fix. And we find ourselves at the end of our days hardened by sin. That is the way of the fool. But what, what is the way of the wise? What does it look like to be prepared to meet the bridegroom? The way of the wise is the way of wisdom. And wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. Now, a skill is something you gain through practice. I went fishing with Glenn a few weeks ago, and I was just amazed. He can take a lure and just with branches just Above the water, he can get it right up next to the bank. Right where the fish are. Just a flick of his wrist. And he didn't get that way by just fishing once. But through practice, he developed wisdom. The ability to place that lure exactly where he wanted it. That's the same way we acquire godliness. We put it into practice. Every day we are conformed to the image of Christ. We are asking ourselves, how is my life more reflecting the glory of God, more reflecting Christ than it was yesterday? And we are gaining the skills of walking in wisdom. Jesus commends five of the virgins, calling them wise, but why? It's because they were prepared to meet the bridegroom. They had extra oil. They had more than they needed. They said, we want to be ready when the bridegroom comes to glory in his coming. When I was in army basic training before Benning in Georgia, one of the things that they're trying to instill in you is discipline and orderliness. And most of us as teenagers are not disciplined or orderly. And I was neither. And I learned some of these lessons hard. But one of the ways that they instill this discipline in you is your grooming, your personal appearance, and all of your areas have to be orderly and neat. 
All of your socks have to be rolled up in these little bundles. And they, each one has to be accounted for. You're issued five sets. You must have five sets in your footlocker. You are issued a, a certain amount of t-shirts. And all of these things are rolled neatly. They're set in your footlocker and they're kept orderly and neat. And the way they ensure that happens is the drill sergeant comes around with surprise inspections. And then he says, Bradley! You know, they're, they're all very angry uh, all the time. I don't know how they keep that fever pitch up, but they do. And they inspect, and usually as they're inspecting, they find the minutest flaws, and they tear apart your stuff so you have to fix it. And, and, uh, and what happens if you're not disciplined and it's found not to be orderly is a, 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 they use discipline, corporal discipline. We called it getting smoked. And you don't want to get smoked. That's like a lot of push-ups or uh, fancy exercises that they invent to inflict pain upon you. And so you, you learn, okay, if I don't keep my footlocker orderly, then I'm going to get smoked. Unfortunately for me, it's also a partner thing. I was, had a bunkmate. My bunkmate was a small guy from Louisiana. A mess. A mess. So after a few times of getting smoked for him... I quietly took him aside and confronted him forcefully as soldiers are wont to do and told them, this is the new arrangement. You will be sleeping on the floor and I will be caring for your footlocker. So we will be always prepared and ready when the drill sergeant comes with a special inspection. And we won't be caught undisciplined, but we will be ready. If Jesus were to come today, right now, are you ready? Are you ready for a surprise inspection? Or do you have some areas that you've kind of been keeping off here? You know, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to get to that. But I've got time, and so I'm just going to wait. I'll deal with that when it comes, but I've got time. Ron is always telling me, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. Are you ready? Many of us have not even given that a consideration. We don't even ask that question. How do we know if a person is ready? What, how would we look at somebody's life and say, that person is ready? Well, first of all, a person is ready when he's trusted in Christ for his salvation. If you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not, by grace through faith, believed that Christ Jesus is the only Savior of sinners, and that He has, on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins, and granted you forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace with God, so that you are justified and adopted into His family. If that's not true of you, please, don't Leave here today without putting your faith in Christ. Our life is so volatile. It's a vanity. It's like smoke here and then gone. Don't wait to trust in Christ. You see, the the foolish virgins didn't know the bridegroom. Do you know Jesus? 
are you intimately acquainted with Jesus such that if He saw you today, He would say, I know you. Come to me. You are mine. Or have you... Is it sort of like a strained relationship? Are you kind of acquaintances? I mean, yeah, you've prayed when things got hard. You know, you faced a hardship and you had nowhere else to turn because you couldn't fix it yourself. So you prayed. Or are you daily acquainted, knowing the Savior of your soul? This happens through the ordinary means of grace. The reading, but especially the preaching of the Word of God. You come to hear the voice of God and you can't get enough of it. You can't get enough of hearing Jesus speak to your heart and you responding to Him in prayer. It's not just a monologue. It's a dialogue. It's you conversing with God and you hearing God speak to you in His Word. He's there present in the sacraments, building your faith, nourishing you and strengthening you. And then you have it in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. You are every day growing because you are learning to walk out your faith in love by bearing each other's burdens, by holding each other up when you're down. The Spirit is at work in all those who have placed their faith in Christ, renewing them to walk by faith, not by sight. And that means that you have to have your eyes on a reality that you cannot see. That is that you have been made right with God. You are a new creature in Christ, and the old man is dead. Paul says you are to consider yourself dead to sin. That is, you can't see what you really look like. You can't see who you really are, but you have to live like it is true because it is. That's what walking by faith is. Living like the kingdom is a present reality because it is. Paul says in Colossians 3, Verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. When the bridegroom comes, He will say, Mine, you are ready for Him. And he would say, come, enter into the joy of your master. The question we ask is, is my current behavior consistent with life in heaven where Christ is? Would I look at that website on my phone if I were sitting in the throne room with Jesus Christ? Would I have that conversation with my wife or my husband? Would I treat them that way or with that tone? If I were in the presence of Christ, would I be angry with my children because they've inconvenienced me by leaving something on the floor? In the presence of Christ, set your mind on the things that are above. That means consider your present reality to be the reality you are enthroned in heaven with Christ. 
So much of the trouble we carry on in this life is made because we think the bridegroom is not here, but he sees. It can't be hidden from him. We think we have these things we've hidden from him because no one else sees them or their thoughts in our mind. But God sees. He's aware. There's a great warning here in verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. You see, your preparation is not transferable. Children, listen to me. You cannot rest on the faith of your fathers or your mothers. You must trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You must believe Him for yourself as your hope. Because someone else's preparation is not good enough for you. It can't be given to somebody else. But you will stand before God on your own. And you will either try to come up with some excuse for why you think you should be there. Or you will claim the precious merits of Jesus Christ. There is only two options. And if you are standing there trusting in your own work, then you will get the same answer that these foolish virgins got. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. The days are even shorter than when we first began. And for some of you, they may be quite short. You could be taken on the way home from church. Are you ready? Don't be caught unprepared. Walk by faith. Discipline yourself to live every day as if it's your last. And then you won't make those kinds of decisions. And you will be like the wise virgins, prepared, ready to meet the bridegroom. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we would be found ready. And yet we know that there is much in us that needs to be killed, needs to be disciplined, needs to be put away. So much of the old man is still reigning in us, causing us to put off for tomorrow what we should be doing today. Humble us under your mighty hand so that on the day of Christ's appearing, we may be ready and we may be welcomed into the wedding feast, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. And we know that you can do this because you who have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. We thank you for the precious work of Jesus Christ. It's his name that we lift up and praise It's his name we glory in, and it's he we are waiting for, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. In his name, amen.